On this episode of People Down the Street You Should Meet, I sit down with Paul Whalen, a world-renowned media sales and marketing expert who's developed industry-defining ROI metrics, written and published multiple books, spoken to thousands of people around the world, and played drums behind Willie Nelson. That's right. He's a friend and mentor of mine who lives right on the banks of Lake LBJ, just outside of Austin. He's the Rick Rubin of media sales and advertising, and if you get real close and listen carefully, you'll experience a masterclass in all things influential language, positivity, visualization, and just how to have a damn good time. I'm excited for you to hear it, so let's go. If you're not outstanding, you won't stand out at all. There's Bingo all laid out. Oh yeah. Bingo is the celebrity guest. Uh, no one knows. The celebrity it. guest. So a theme throughout all of your messaging is the power of communication. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think so. I think I've spent a career studying how people communicate. And I've written a couple of books on the subject that are more geared towards, say, media sales. But understanding human nature is a big part of communicating with people clearly in a world that is dangerously moving toward disagreement on what is even factual. And so in sales, being able to read someone gives you the ability to then, if you have the means, the resources, to convince another person beyond a shadow of a doubt that your plan for their success is better than their plan. And so people struggle with that depending on what they know about human nature, what they don't know, how they feel about life. Is life a constant series? of disasters because that's the way some people live. Yeah, weren't you referencing fight or flight earlier? They're constantly in the fight or flight, and that's something that we should talk about. I mean, look what happens in fight or flight. Certain hormones kick in, and I think being an endocrinologist would be one of the coolest jobs in medicine because it's those chemicals that are released at certain times inside of people and make us behave in certain ways. And the fight or flight, that's the one that protects us when we're confronted with mortal decisions. I mean, this would be on the scale of what we call existentialism. Do we live or do we die? We're attacked by a woolly mammoth back in caveman days. Or maybe another tribe raiding. But how often did the adrenaline flow back then? Was it daily like it is for people who have to commute? <laughs> and every day there's some asshole on the road right in front of you. <laughs> Or they were behind you, and now they're right in front of you. And then the adrenaline starts flowing. You slam on the brakes. You honk the horn. You scream the obscenity. And then you lighten down again. And then it happens again. And then you get to work, and, and, and who knows what happens. And, and that there is just one calamity after another. And then so many people, they live a drama life. Mm. And their job is to... To inflict their drama on you, to put their monkey on your back. You're right. And then there's a domino effect between them and everyone else. There are empathetic people out there who fall for that. 
And that's how we get into relationships with malignant narcissists. And they're used to getting what they want. And they have learned to get what they want by behaving a certain way. For example, we know when a baby wants to be chained Mm. or held or fed. What will that baby do to convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt that feeding them is better for us than not feeding (laughs) them? Mm Mm-hmm. They raise hell, and it works. (laughs) And some people never evolve beyond that. Mm. So life is a drama for them, inflicting on others, projecting on others, and then watching the freak show. Mm. And that can happen in an organization where you have somebody that moves in. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. And at first, that person could be charming Mm -hmm. and so positive. And then pretty soon, the organization starts to be affected by this one person Mm -hmm. who obfuscates, tells one person something, somebody else another. And where does that, where does all that come from? It's, It's work for them. And they're bullies, maybe. They're bullies. How do bullies get away with being a bully? Well, no one has ever explained to them in language that they don't understand that this sort of behavior is absolutely not acceptable. Yep, and it negatively impacts the culture and hinders progress and productivity at every turn. All it does is distract and causes anxiety and causes good people to leave. Mm-hmm. Yep. I left a really good job. I was the top biller at a bunch of radio stations in Austin. And somebody offered me a better deal. And I was quick to take the deal because we had hired a terrible sales manager the kind of person that was jealous that some of the salespeople were making more money than the sales manager was making. But you don't go into sales management with the idea that you're going to make more money than all the salespeople. You go into management because you have different goals, perhaps. You want to move from sales manager to general manager or even own your own business. But this individual didn't understand that. So he made life as difficult as possible for some of the top performers. And two of us left. And The general manager was confused and horrified and didn't seem to understand. He just made a bad sales manager hiring and wasn't monitoring the situation that would allow the best people to walk out. Mm -hmm. But that happens. I don't know. How does that happen? Because you see it all the time where somebody stays way longer than you would expect. And I don't know if it's just a function of being afraid you can't find the next person or it's just common that that type of environment. Why, why is do people stay in abusive relationships? Right, right. Because they're afraid. Mm. They're afraid to leave. Mm. That's a whole different can of worms. But people stay in abusive relationships at work as well. I don't get it. I don't understand. What'd you do to break out? You had a plan, right? To go either on your own or you were going to Europe, you said. Yeah, in my case, an opportunity just fell in my lap at about that period of time, which allowed me to, since we were (laughs) child-free, it made it easier to move abroad. So we packed up and left our home in Austin and moved to a country with no vowels, the Czech Republic, (laughs) uh, formerly Czechoslovakia. And uh, I ran radio stations there for a big company called iHeart. Now it was Clear Channel back then, but they'd made an international move, and they were looking for an international director. 
and out of thousands of people, apparently, they decided that maybe I was their best candidate because besides maintaining that account list in Austin, I was teaching media sales at the University of Texas, an elective course in the advertising department. But they thought, hmm, if he can teach these kids how to talk to people about marketing and advertising, maybe he could train these checks. And then they went further. They bought radio stations in Geneva, Lausanne, Switzerland, and uh, and then stations in London and Manchester and Birmingham, and then eventually also in Denmark. And so I was uh, involved in all of those as well. So I traveled pretty extensively in Europe, and all that came from somebody essentially pissing me off <laughs> at the stable job that I'd been in for 20 years. You mm. know? We're going to get to your book, and I love the book, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. It's called Think Like an Ad Man, Sell Like a Madman, How to Connect with Consumers by Paul Wayland. But what we'll talk about later is how I believe the book translates even outside of sales, how it relates to anyone venturing on a business path or even interacting with friends and family. But my question to you out of the Czech Republic and and that path was, what kind of things were you asked to focus on? Were you literally going into these radio stations and saying, you're doing it wrong? Or were they coming to you? No, that was never my approach. My approach was to go in and say, I'm here to watch and take notes for a few months. And then if I can find ways to make us more successful, I'll try to introduce some ideas after we kind of see what we've got. Let's look at what we've got and how we can make that better in time. Mm-hmm. That was the way to go in. I had a special issue when I went there because when I arrived in 1996-97, although communism had finished in 1989, and then in 1990, Slovakia and Czech Republic split up. So there was a lot going on. But they would say, Paul, we are forgetting Russian and learning English as fast as we can. But that wasn't fast enough for me. So I became an expert at using a Czech language translator. And then you learn the tempo of a language. And that's a whole another skill. Learning how to use a translator, and I had good instruction from a British guy that worked at Monsanto who lived in my building. He worked for Monsanto and then ConAgra. What he was there to do was take old Soviet farms that were now being privatized and teach the new private owners how to farm better using these ConAgra or Monsanto products. And he had learned to use a translator. So he taught me the translator always sits to your right, looking to my right at a a long table. You're bringing so I've got an actual person there, uh-huh. and that person is staring over my right shoulder toward the other end, not looking at me, only saying what I'm saying. And then over time, you learn the cadence of a language, like Czech is a flowery language, so it would take about three times longer to say something in Czech that it would take in English, and you learn how that works. So if you're saying, for example, I'm going to the store, would take long longer to say in Czech. Hmm. It's a hard language, and there are seven cases for every noun. So we learn to speak Czech. I took Czech lessons every day, but it's baby Czech. But I did learn how to use translators and how to make sure that they weren't paraphrasing me. Right. Because I knew the case. I said, why did it only take you that long to say that? Well, I was paraphrasing. I said, well, don't paraphrase me. Because every word matters. Well, every word matters indeed. And that street works both ways. For example, one time I said, just regarding sales, I said, we have to become more aggressive. And she said, Paul, are you sure that aggressive is the word you want to use? I said, yes. And she said it. And immediately everybody at the table folded their arms. And I said, what's going on? You know, because you're reading your audience. She says, Paul, 
the Russians were aggressive, the Nazis were aggressive. I said, no, 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 that's not what I meant, you know. Yeah. And, and even no, 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 you got to be careful with that because over there, no means yes. Really? And you got to get that down. I mean, <laughs> you're talking about walking into a cultural and conversational nightmare. <laughs> and so a lot of the things that you find in my book are things I learned from really having to go through the weeds to learn how to communicate better. Mm-hmm. You use very simple messaging. You use very concise messaging. You use messaging that's relatable. Like I said, in more than the sales realm, really, really enjoyed the book. Thank you. That book was hard to write. And I'll tell you why I wrote that book. You made a good point. That book is not, you know, media salespeople can read that book and glean a lot out of it, but it's really written for people who own their own businesses or who want to run or own a business. Mm -hmm. That's why I wrote that book. So I kept it to a certain length. I think, what is it? How many pages? 140. 140 is exactly what I, and it took forever to edit that book down to 140 pages, which is what they call a business person's read. That means that somebody on an airplane could probably read that book in about three hours. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the goal. Yep. And to keep read. it simple and to teach people how to better communicate, how to get their ideas across to people more concisely, more organically, more efficiently, and more effectively. Yeah, at the core of the writing is super creative, super intuitive. The way that you see the world is different, and I really admire it. There's a ton of examples in here of a situation that you observed and then gleaned from it how to transform it into a message that would be relatable to everyone. And it's awesome. I'd love to hear what you're seeing in today's Well, I've world. got one right now I figured that I can you explain. Did to you. Yeah. And it happened on 60 Minutes. And it happened to be a record producer, Rick Rubin. Did you watch that interview with Anderson Cooper? No, but I read the book that you told me to read, and it's amazing. It's 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 amazing. I ordered the book as well. It was a little bit more touchy-feely yeah. than, but anything on creativity, I'm interested in. But what he said that really, really got to me the most was when Anderson Cooper said, and this is the man that did all the Def Jam records, Jay-Z, he did. Beastie who? Boys. Yeah, Beastie Boys. And then on to Johnny Cash and Tom Petty and even stuff with Mick Jagger. I mean, the guy looks like a guru. He's got a long beard and long gray hair. Here's what he said that got me the most. And Anderson said, well, what about your audience? And Rick Rubin said, I don't care about the audience. And Anderson says, what? You I mean, you make all these great... What do you mean you don't care about the audience? And this is what got me. And this is good for all... It's good information for everybody. He said, all the audience knows is what they've seen or heard before. That's all they know. And that's how they base how they run a business or how they run their life based on all they've seen or heard before, but they haven't heard from me. And so they don't know that maybe I have a solution to something that may be keeping them awake at night. And in a good commercial, I always say, and I wrote this, why run a commercial at all? If it doesn't do one of these three things, does it make people's lives safer? Does it? Does it make people's lives more convenient? Does it? Or does it make people's lives more luxurious or fun? Hmm. And if it's not doing one of those three things, why would it even be on the air? Why? 
I mean, it's a waste of time. And and the clearest example, are, you know, the difference between how people talk in a commercial, for example, and how we talk in real life. Mm-hmm. And I put an example in the book. Can you imagine, Brian, walking up on me and let's say Bingo, let's say Bingo was a human, Bingo the dog and you walk up and Bingo is saying, Paul, this is one red hot sizzling summer sale we can't afford to miss. <laughs> and I say, that's right, Bingo. Uh, we'll love their loyal and eager salesperson and their prices just can't be beaten. And you say, yes, Paul, but only for a limited time and only at participating stores. And I say, that's right, Brian. And then I say, factory invoice contribution may affect final negotiated price EPA MVG 32 city 48 which means you know I just lied about everything we just said in this commercial yeah. I'm lying I'm lying you killed me in the book uh, and I told my wife about this where you said you know don't put that at the end of the commercial put it in the beginning I know you were joking and then you had someone come back and say man that worked and you yeah, said it hey was, it was funny it was Oklahoma City I believe and, and this it was a furniture store guy and he came up he says Paul I saw you the last time you were in town and uh, I told my partner and I brought him this time and you know you taught me so much I said what'd you learn he goes that part about putting the disclaimer at the beginning of the commercial instead of the end you know so it looks like the end of the last guy's commercial. I said, no, no, that was a joke. And he, and he crossed his arms and says, well, it's working for me. <laughs> I brought that up uh, the other day. I was in uh, Selma, Alabama, talking to a chamber event. And somebody brought that same story up. And so I told that story again. That's cool. So you're still doing speaking engagements. I did. I, I, I did go out. I went to Columbus, Georgia, where I'd lived as a child because my father was stationed in Fort Benning. So you, you're doing these speaking engagements, and you got into those after you moved around the world, right? I have worked, since I started my own company in 2000, I have worked in all 50 states, all the territories except uh, the Philippines. I haven't been there, but I've been to the Virgin Islands. I've been to Puerto Rico, but also a bunch of other countries, including just about everywhere in Europe, where I lived for three years as well. I've been to India five times. I've been to South Africa working and and, uh, several times in Australia, spoken in Rome, Barcelona, Madrid, Finland, Riga, Latvia, Mm. Ireland, England, Scotland. So you think about your book. You you wrote this book. You, of course, worked in the industry for a long time. You travel the world. You're making direct impact at these radio stations, Dubai. (laughs) When you think about your legacy as an authority over this space, you think about all these people who you've had direct impact to, the book has had impact to, what's left to fulfill in that? That's a, that's a question, and it's, been, uh, it's, it's something I've been working on. And I'm looking at writing another book, and mm. it wouldn't have much to do with sales, but more about just how miserable people can become. And the book is called, tentatively, Holding On to Your Own Leash, How to Manage Yourself. <laughs> and it would have a dog on the front with a leash in his mouth. Bingo or a different dog? Maybe so, maybe bingo. <laughs> but I've got a picture of a... A dog with a leash in his mouth that I like a lot, that I have permission to use. And all this came from, it's an old friend of mine, a dear friend. Her name is Suzanne. I told her I saw a kid at the grocery store on one of those leashes. And I remember seeing that when I was a boy. And I thought, but for the love of God, that's not me. That was horrible. (laughs) This kid on a freaking leash. And Suzanne said, I was that kid. 
I said, you're joking me. And she said, I am not joking. She said, one day, my kid brother, who never acted up, started acting out on aisle nine. And my mom, in desperation, said, Suzanne, could you please hold on to your own leash while I go take care of your brother? (laughs) And Suzanne said, yes, ma'am. And her mother handed her the leash, which is like handing her the keys. And Suzanne said, and from that moment on, I was good. Mm, interesting. So, I thought so, too. You're, so you're trying to impart this into people via the book? And your, and your concept is that if you think in those terms, you can better control your life? It's just a start to introducing the title of the book, and then we start moving further into some real-life scenarios that I talk about the adrenaline situation and how people live their lives, especially when there's stress at home. I notice something. I go to the doctor, and when they shut the door, when I'm talking to the physician's assistant or the nurse or whatever, I'm getting this a lot. Do you feel safe at home? Really? Every time. Wow. Do you feel safe at home? Hmm. This is interesting because a lot of people don't. And maybe this is the only opportunity where they're in a locked room without an abuser in the room with them. And somebody can say, do you feel safe at home? No. Hmm. I'm, th- I'm being abused by my boyfriend, by my wife, by my uh, kids. W- kids or w- w- whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's shocking. I'm glad people ask that question. But look at the way people live. Do you want to live like an animal where you're always in reactive mode? And that's the way a lot of people live. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're thinking about worst case scenarios. It's like you have a little devil and a little angel, one on each shoulder. The little devil's going, uh, lie to your boss, do this, you know, do that. And the other way, no, no, don't, you know, that's terrible. And then how often do we get led astray and we do the wrong thing? And then there are consequences for that. And it seems like people are always chasing their tail, that they never get out of a a, a bad financial situation, that they can't lose weight or they can't have a relationship with someone else or they have other problems and I go into one that I had. My father was a military officer and a math whiz. He was an architectural engineer. He was also a nuclear weapons officer, battlefield nuclear weapons in Germany, Hmm. but he was good at math and I was terrible. I went to 14 different schools. My sister, Valerie, and I, my closest in my age, not Karen, she may have attended the same number I did. I'm including the University of Texas. But we moved so frequently back then that you're at one school and you're learning, say, the addition and subtraction of fractions. And then you move to the next school and they've already covered that. And so you're always behind. And so in math, I was lagging behind and I just didn't get it. And then they introduced a new math, more worldwide theory of teaching math. I just didn't get that. I couldn't see it. And so what I did, Brian, between us, I got through the University of Texas, my full degree without ever having to take one math class. (laughs) It took cunning. It took a tremendous amount of time on my part and a lot of research. My degree counselor said, I can't believe you're getting away with this. But here's how it started. I mean, I got to junior high And I think it was an algebra course. And the instructor said something. And I raised my hand. I was a new kid. And I asked a question. And he made fun of that question. Mm -hmm. And then all the kids who I didn't even know yet were laughing at me. Mm -hmm. And so how many more questions do you think I ever ask about math? 
None. So I went through this six-year degree without ever taking a math class. One time I took Astronomy 101. That was a mistake. Parsec, what the hell is that? You know? <laughs> you know, how many, Isn't that how how many, many... cubits in a parsec? <laughs> well, I know that the Millennium Falcon did the Kessel Run in, I think, 12 parsecs, wow. according to Han Solo. <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about. And so I managed, I struggled through this and, of course, avoided anything having to do with math. And if somebody said, Paul, do you want to teach math? I'd say, absolutely not. In other words, I would blow off any opportunity that had anything to do with math. I, I would completely negate that. And, and that's out of my life. That is a terrible experience for me. I don't want to have anything to do with math, even if it would make me a lot of money. Fuck math. <laughs> And then one day I was walking through book people and I saw a colorful book and it was called something like Fun with Math. Mm. And I just picked it up and started going through it. And some of the stuff in there amazed me. It was like, so let's say you had 15 compact discs, numbered one through 15. Each one had a number on it. Mm -hmm. One, two, three, four, all the way to 15. And you wanted to put all 15 of those CDs in every possible combination of one through 15. And you had one minute per change. How long would it take? to put all of those CDs in every possible combination of 1 through 15 with one minute per change. And what do you think the answer to that question would be? 2,408,000 years. <laughs> years. <laughs> years, because it's 15 times 14 times 30, you know, it's, and I went, whoa. And then, you know, something else that I still remember from that book, it's called Magic Numbers or something. It was the number 37. Yeah. And that it's a prime number, 37. But it's also the only number that can be wholly divided into 111, 222, 333, 444, 555, 666, 777, 888, cool. 999. I, and, and the Egyptians tried to base an entire numerical system on the number 37. I mean, that's pretty quirky. Mm. Uh, 37 divided into 111 is 3. 37 divided into 222 is 6, and all of the, the mm. way up. I mean, it's crazy. It's cool. And then I started thinking, math is fun. And then I created a way for radio and television salespeople to calculate return on investment on any advertising they bought using two numbers, their own gross margin of profit and their own average sale to determine how much we should be asking mm. uh, for an advertising budget instead of just saying, for to someone who doesn't know anything except what they've already seen or heard before. Well, what's your budget for this? And so instead of saying, what's your budget for this? And you always get lowballed. You never ask people. You question. tell them what their budget should be. You that tell was them like everybody else does. And, yeah. and, you know, you remember the movie, Meet the Parents? Mm -hmm. uh, remember the circle of trust? Mm -hmm. You're, are you a pothead fucker? Are you puffing the magic dragon fucker? <laughs> remember that movie? Yep. Remember that he had, you're in the circle fucker or you're outside the circle. And that circle of trust is a big deal. And I realized he was talking about his direct friends and family and his circle of trust, but there are two circles. One would be your close friends and relatives. The other would be those professional people that you've had in your life all your life. Mm -hmm. And how do you get into that circle of professional trust? Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Like I had the same doctor for 40 years, same dentist, 20 years, same insurance agent for 35 years, the same lawyer, intellectual property lawyer for 25, 30 years. All these people have had massive price increases through this period of time, but uh, I haven't fired them. Trust. Why didn't I fire these people for, for raising their prices? Because I think they've got my back. Yeah, you trust them. I trust them. 
And so the point I try to make when I talk to people who own their own businesses, if you're going to advertise, let's do this correctly. Let's earn our way into that circle of professional trust. Mm -hmm. And that is entirely possible by giving people chunks of information, telling people things that they don't know that you know. Continued on episode two of three of the Paul Whalen interview.